you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 7, we are continuing our series, our Advent series uh, in Isaiah. Timothy preached two sermons from chapter 11, and this week I will be preaching from chapter 7 here, this, uh, and next week from chapter 9, as we are exploring these key texts in Isaiah, written about 730 years before Jesus was born, but they speak so clearly and profoundly about the person and work of Messiah, the anointed king. And today with chapter 7, we see the title is God with us. And so if you found your place, Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, raising the king of Syria, and, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and, and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, that is Israel, and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaya. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or a high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of eternal life that is found only in Christ. I pray, O oh God, that you would give us understanding of this glorious passage and help us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What are two words that come to mind when you think about Christmas? Two words that come to mind when you think about Christmas. 
Two words that probably don't come to your mind when you think about Christmas are helpless and hopeless. Yet, I would argue that they are really crucial to understanding what Christmas is all about. You see, when you're helpless, you realize that there's nothing that you can do to change the dire situation that you're in. All of your resourcefulness, all of your ingenuity, all of your resources, if you're rich, all of your money, nothing can, can, can save you or help you in the dire circumstance. You're, you're helpless, and because you're helpless, you feel hopeless. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? What hope is there for me? Everybody in this room has experienced those things at one time or another. Helplessness and hopelessness. And it's those two things, that situation, that King Ahaz and the people of Judah found themselves in. Now before dealing with that, I've got to take a little bit of a side bar here and just give you a little bit of background about what's going on here. In the background, we have to go back to Exodus. And in Exodus, we remember where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And so God raised up Moses and God delivers the Israelites who were enslaved and he makes a covenant with them. And the covenant is that they would worship the Lord Yahweh alone. Worship and serve him. Love him alone. He's to be their God. He is, they are his people. They're to worship and serve him alone. And the covenant is blessings if you obey and curse if you disobey. And so God delivers them from, from Egypt and he brings them into the land of promise and he establishes them in the land of promise. And then we remember David, the shepherd boy, is made king. And God makes a promise to David, an everlasting covenant, that David, there's some, that, that his kingdom's going to be forever. That somebody's going to rule on the throne forever. And then David dies and we remember Solomon. And Solomon starts out well, the man of wisdom. But he shows himself not to be so wise in time. He, he begins to turn away from the Lord. And then when he dies, after he dies, the kingdom is divided between north and south. The north you have Israel, which comprises of ten tribes, and in the south is Judah and Benjamin, just simply called Judah. And then as you see the history, hundreds of years after David, you, you track the history of the kings in Israel and Judah, you see that the kings of Israel were relentlessly idolatrous relentlessly idolatrous. And in Judah, it was kind of a mixed bag. Some were good, some were not so good. At the time of Ahaz, 240 years now have passed since King David. Ahaz is a notorious blasphemer. He is a notorious idolater, worshiping the false gods. He's, he's a pragmatist. Whatever gods he thinks are going to deliver him, I'll worship them. He worships the god of Syria. He'll go on to worship the gods of Assyria. And so bad was Ahaz that he had his son sacrificed to the fire. He engaged in child sacrifice. So in that context, Isaiah now, the prophet Isaiah, God raises himself, raises up Isaiah to 
to bring what amounts to a covenant lawsuit against his people for breaking covenant, that covenant that was made 700 years previously. And in our text, we see Israel and Syria, they're threatening now to destroy Jerusalem. They're coming against Ahaz. You see there on the map, Judah in the bottom, Israel, Syria. They come together, they form an alliance, and they say, we're going to wipe out Judah. We're going to get rid of Ahaz and put in somebody else to be king. And Ahaz and the people are terrified. How would you feel if you're in Judah and you know what's coming against you? And, you know, in those days when, it, when you were conquered, it wasn't like, okay, everybody, just come, we're going to round you up now and put you in a, in a prison and everything will be good. No. It was horrific. So they're shaking with fear. They're terrified. They're helpless and they're hopeless. But God sends Isaiah. And he tells him, he tells Ahaz, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Be firm in the faith. And he tells him to ask for a sign. But Ahaz refuses. And so God gives him a sign anyway. Here's the sign. A virgin shall bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then we go on to read that a baby will be born shortly thereafter. While he's still basically a toddler, God would deliver his helpless and hopeless people from their enemies. But we also know that there's a greater fulfillment that that looks to. A more glorious day when the true Davidic king, one who's greater than Ahaz, one who's greater than David, would actually be God with us and deliver all those who trust in him alone to deliver them from their helpless and hopeless slavery to sin and death and Satan. And so the main idea I want us to look at this morning is God calls us to trust in him alone because of his promise to be with us. Three things to look at. First of all, God's call to trust in him alone. Now, we see, as I've already said in the introduction here, Israel and uh, Syria are coming against Judah. Now, it's important to understand the context here a little bit. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, really sets the context for us. Syria and Israel had already attacked Judah on separate occasions, separately. Syria really, both Syria and Israel really did a number on Judah. Judah is reeling. And now, Syria and Israel join together to say, we're going to finish the job. They're standing at the gates of Jerusalem, ready to attack. And so Ahaz shakes with fear. The people shake with fear. Ahaz knows, you know, if that happens, I'm going to be brutalized. The people are going to suffer. And so they're helpless and they're hopeless. So do they turn to the Lord? Great opportunity, Ahaz. You know who the Lord is. Your father Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the scriptures say. You know the word. You know the faithfulness of Yahweh. How about turning to the Lord? Is that what he does? No. 
2 Chronicles 28, 16, he seeks the Assyrians. He sent to the king of Assyria, the mighty Assyrian empire. Help us, O king of Assyria. There's only one little problem with that. In order for that to happen, that would mean that he would have to pledge allegiance to Assyria. And in pledging allegiance to Assyria, that meant he would have to enter into a covenant with them. And in entering entering into a covenant with them, he would agree to be their vassals. And in being their vassals, he would agree to worship their gods. It would be a puppet state. This is what Ahaz does. Come help us, Assyria, and we will be your people. That's essentially what the issue is. And so, what does the Lord do? What would you do if you were the Lord? (laughs) Thankfully, the Lord, we're not the Lord. (laughs) Think of this, all these years, even before Ahaz, the Lord, you know, he, what does he do? And you have Ahaz, this wicked king, what does he do? Grace. He sends Isaiah to Ahaz and tells him, tells Isaiah, bring your son, Shayar Yeshuv, whose name means a remnant will return. No, that's interesting. A remnant will return. Just in the very presence of the son here, the name conveys a message to Ahaz. Now, there's a dual message very likely here going on that we'll talk about that in a minute. But really, at first here, verses 4 through 9, he spells out what the boy's name is meant to convey to Ahaz. He tells him, don't fear, because Syria and Israel will be snuffed out like smoldering logs. They're just like a little match that you light and you... That's all they are. They're no big deal. Israel will be totally done away with in 65 years. And so the idea is, God is faithful to his promises. He promised Abraham, way before this, that Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than all the stars in the sky, and that he would be a blessing to the nations, and that kings would come from him. And then he promised David that David, that, that someone would be on the throne forever, that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And so, don't fear. I will preserve my people. I have a remnant, my people. They're not going to perish. I will be faithful to my promise. Why? Because I am the sovereign, almighty creator and Lord of heaven and earth. I alone am that. There is no other. Trust in me. And that's basically what you see. He gives the warning to Ahaz, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not stand at all. You will not be firm at all. It's a little difficult in the translation here, and you see different English translations of this difficult passage. It's a play on words. The idea is believe, stand, firm, be established if you're not. 
all these things are conveyed. It's the, it's the idea, if you try to get a, like an, an image of it, it's kind of like being firmly planted. You know, like your feet are in cement. You're, this is where I'm at. I'm stayed here. Stay here. Trust in the Lord. Don't move this way. Don't move that way. If you do that, you'll be established. But if you don't, you won't be firm. You won't be established. You will fall. You'll be doomed. That's the idea. It's a call to repentance. Will you stand on the solid ground of the sovereign Lord or on the sinking sand of Assyria and her false gods? If you won't trust in the Lord, you're going to be doomed. That's the basic idea. Now, a couple applications here for us. Really, we can look at it, first of all, just all humanity in general. All humanity in general. The call is the same call, I think, really, in, this, in a way, to all humanity. We all face the enemies of sin and death that threaten to destroy us. And we're all suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We're all worshiping our own false gods, looking for a way out, looking for, for satisfaction, looking for peace, looking for a way to escape the impending doom. But none of those can deliver us. And so the message to all of humanity is, is to turn, to trust, to believe in the one true and living God. Otherwise, you'll be doomed. Doomed to destruction, eternal destruction. If we're believers, there's multiple ways we can look at this. Let's just be honest, as believers, there are times when we feel helpless and hopeless in the face of any number of circumstances. Any number of circumstances. We get in that place and we feel like we don't know where we're going to turn. We know the truth. We have the Bible. I met with a friend recently and he said, you know these things, John. Like, I know, I, I know these things, but I need to hear you tell me these things. But even then, it's hard to take hold of it. But that's what we have to do, God's word. But instead of that, sometimes we turn to other things to relieve the pain, to find comfort, to find peace, something to help us to, to dull that sense of helplessness and hopelessness that, that's overwhelming us. Some of us turn to alcohol and abuse it or prescription drugs, or pornography, or any number of things. And so the call of the Lord to us is, listen, trust in me. The Lord hasn't promised us that we're not going to have difficult circumstances in our lives. Just the opposite. The promise is that 
He's ordained difficult circumstances in our lives, and he has promised to be Emmanuel, God with us, in the midst of the circumstance. And so our job is to cling tightly to the Lord. How do I do that? Through prayer, through his word, and through the body of Christ. Why is the church so important? You need brothers and sisters. We can't walk through the wilderness of this world without each other. That's one of the reasons God put us together in the body of Christ. So there's that. But also, as believers, I think in the West especially, we're, we're starting to wake up to the fact that, gee, you know, the world doesn't really like us so much. Gee, it, it, the cross is an offense to those who are perishing. Because we've been spoiled for the past couple hundred years in this country because of freedom of religion, which is a great gift. But now we're starting to see the, the tide turn a little bit. And we're starting to, just something as simple as marriage is between one man and one woman, that is a controversial thing all of a sudden. It's something that could get you all kinds of trouble. Any number of issues. And so what do we do? Jesus said the world is going to hate you. How do we stand? Well, we have to stand. Stand firm. Because if you don't, you won't be firm at all. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We have to take, we have to take our stand upon the gospel, upon Christ and him crucified and risen and ascended. How do we do that? How do we stand firm in the faith? We have to learn Christ. Learn him. How do I learn him? Read his word. Study his word. Get involved in the church. We have Bible studies. Prayer. In prayer. Foster your relationship with the Lord in prayer. Talk to him. Wherever you're at. Right? Pray without ceasing. Lord, I love you. Lord, I need you. Lord, how about this one? Lord, help me. <laughs> Please help me. Right? Lord, I pray for so-and-so. Lord, I pray for that. I pray for this person. Lord, I pray for the lost. Learn Christ. Know Christ. Proclaim Christ. Stand firm in Christ. And this is a collective thing. It's not just an individual thing. We do this together as the body of Christ. And so Ahaz wanted peace and security. If you want that, you want your throne established, guess what you have to do? You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from your idolatry. Yahweh alone is God. Believe in him. Trust in him. Stand firm in him. If not, you will not stand. And now the Lord is about to test Ahaz and prove that he alone is God, and that he alone, and not the Assyrians or their gods, is to be trusted, which takes us to the second point. Verses 10 through 12, he, the Lord commands Ahaz to ask for a sign to prove that he will save his enemies. I'm going to prove it to you. Ask for a sign. Anything. Go ahead, blank check. <laughs> The Lord says, do this. Ahaz, 
I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> That's just how he said it too, because I saw the video. <laughs> now, when you read this, I remember the first time I read this many, many years ago. I was like, wow, Ahaz is a pretty good guy. That's right. You're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. The scripture says that. We'll put the Lord to the test. Like, good, good job, Ahaz. Seems very spiritual, right? Well, no. God commands Ahaz to ask for the sign. And faithless, disobedient Ahaz, defiant Ahaz, disobeys God. And listen, listen what he does. He tries to hide behind religion. He tries to hide behind spirituality and sounds so holy and righteous when he's not. In his sin, to hide his sin, he tries to use God's word to cover the fact that he's just disobedient and defiant and a blasphemer. A couple points of application here. You know, it's interesting. I thought about this. Ahaz is what we call, Presbyterians like to call, a covenant kid. He was a covenant kid. He was circumcised. He grew up. His father was, the scripture says, he did what was right in the, in the eyes of the Lord. He heard the word. He was discipled in the way that he should go. He knew the truth, but somewhere along the line, he didn't want it. He used God for his own devices. He had the language of faith without possessing the heart of faith. The language of faith without possessing the heart of faith. Kids. Where's the kids at? <laughs> so boys and girls, mom and dad take you to church because they want you to learn the things of God because it's important. They want you to take hold of that. They want to train you up in the ways of the Lord. But you have to take hold of these things for yourself. You have to understand that you need the Lord for yourself. And so I want to encourage you, boys and girls, to say, you know what? I'm so thankful that mom and dad take me to church. Sometimes I don't want to go. I'd rather stay home and play with my video games or whatever. But I'm glad, and now I want to learn as much as I can about Jesus. Why? Well, because I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved. And Jesus died for my sins. So I'm going to trust in him alone. I'm not just going to talk the faith. I want to actually possess it. I want to believe for myself. So when you come to church with mom and dad, be involved, be engaged. Love the Lord. Trust in him. Put your trust in him now, boys and girls. Put your trust in him now. And adults, you're like, you thought, oh, good, it's just for the kids. We're safe. <laughs> Adults, how often do we say and do things, but our hearts are far from God? How often do we misuse Scripture to justify our sin and our faithlessness? Common example. Well, God said, don't judge. Right? How dare you confront me with God said, well, you're being judgmental. How many times have you heard that? <laughs> If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. I had a nickel every time. 
don't judge. Well, it's true, God says don't judge, but he also tells us to make a right judgment. We're commanded to judge between right and wrong. And scripture tells us to confront those going astray and to call them to repentance. The only way to do that is if you judge whether or not the person has sinned and needs to be confronted. And so it's just a cop out when we say, don't judge. I can't judge a person in the sense of, you now are, I'm God, and you know, in that sense. But we make judgments. We have to make right judgments. And when we see a brother or sister straying from the faith, love demands that we go to that one. In gentleness, considering ourselves, lest we too fall. Say, brother, sister, we're deeply concerned for you. Turn from your sin. God said, don't judge him. But he also said to, to, to bring back the one who's straying. We're not judging you. We're just bearing the truth to you in love for your sake. And so the reason Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign isn't because he's so spiritual or faithful. It's because he's disobedient. He's defiant. His mind is already made up. He's already rejected the Lord and offered himself to the Assyrians and their gods. And now he doesn't want to be, cons be confused with the facts. The facts of who God really is. The fact that the one true and living God can indeed do what he says. Whatever sign you want, I can do it. Why? Because I am. I am. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I know the beginning from the end. What do those false gods know? What can they do? Nothing. And you know it, Ahaz. But it's too late now. So then, verses 14, 13 through 14, the Lord rebukes him, gives him a startling promise. The Lord himself, you, you weary, you, you weary men, now you weary God. How hard is it to weary God? <laughs> Where he's God, it's okay, I'm going to give you a sign myself. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, as Christians, we're used to reading this in light of Matthew 1, the Gospels, the New Testament, how Jesus' divine conception is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, and that is absolutely 100% true. However, the prophecy is also assigned to Ahaz. It's meant to com convey something to him and is meant to be fulfilled in some way during his lifetime, 735 years before Jesus was born. How do we know that? Well, because the rest of the passage tells us that. Verses 15 through 16, see that before the child uh, knows how to refuse good or evil, that the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. It goes on to say even more things. This is something that's going to happen in the very near future in the lifetime of Ahaz. What we have going on here is what commentators refer to as a double fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The prophecy has reference to the historical situation to be fulfilled at that time or near that time but also a distant 
time, a distant, a future fulfillment by Messiah, when Messiah comes. Two senses. There's going to be fulfillment here, but an even greater fulfillment here in the future that will happen with Messiah. And so there's going to be a virgin. And there's all kinds of disputes about the Hebrew word ama, what that means, and then the, the Greek, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word it's used there, which in the Greek really means this virgin. The idea here in the Hebrew, the bottom line is, ama is a young woman of marrying age, virgin. This is the bottom line, just a cut to the chase. Who will give birth to a son, and before he's old enough to know right and wrong, God will destroy the kings of Syria and Israel. That raises the question, who is this child that would be born in the lifetime of Ahaz? Well, since you asked, Isaiah chapter 8, not everybody agrees with this, but a lot of commentators do. They believe it's this child here who will be born to, I, to Isaiah. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that fast ten times. <laughs> It means the prey hastens, something to that effect. The, the, the destruction will be speedy. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen fast. The spoil spreads. That's the idea. The text says before he would be able to say, my mother, my father, the Assyrians would destroy Syria and Israel, but would also devastate Judah. Wait a second. I... How's that in the, how's that in the, in the cards? <laughs> Destroy, devastate Judah? Yeah, but you see, Ahaz, because of his unfaithfulness, will face judgment because of his rejection of Yahweh. But God will preserve a remnant. And it goes on to refer to this son as Emmanuel, God with us. Not that he's divine, but he's the unmistakable sign and symbol of God's presence in both salvation and judgment. We see this in verses 17 through 23 of chapter 7 as well. The point is this. Because Ahaz disobeyed God, God was also going to judge Judah through the Assyrians. He's going to wipe out Syria, wipe out Israel. I'm going to save remnant, but there's going to be judgment still coming to Judah because of this. And this son, this child, will be a, a sign to them of that very thing. Judah would be a shell of its former self. And the child is a constant reminder that God was with his people to save them, but also present in judgment against Ahaz for what he did in choosing Assyria and leading the people astray into idolatry. Well, that takes us to the third point, God's promise to be with his people is fulfilled in Jesus. We see this child, Emmanuel, God with us. No mere human child can capture what it means that God is with us. I think we all could agree with that. And to really understand this, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the garden, God creates man. He creates man. He creates Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, Adam is really... He's tasked to, to tend the garden. The garden is really the first temple because God is in the midst. God is dwelling with his people. And Adam is tasked. He's really the first king. He's a prophet. He's a king. He's a priest. He's tasked to tend the garden, the temple. 
And of course, we know what happens to, to Adam. He falls into sin, and when he falls into sin, access to the temple is barred with the flaming swords. Access to, to, to God's presence is barred. God no longer dwells with his people. But then in Genesis 3.15, as we've said for the past two years, God promised to send a deliverer through the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The deliverer would be God with us in the most profound sense of the word. And so Isaiah has that promise in view as well. There's coming a day when the true Davidic king, through the seed of the woman, who will be God with us. He will do what King Adam failed to do. He will do what all the kings of, of Israel and Judah failed to do. He will perfectly obey God's law. He will be able to usher in God's kingdom where there'll be, where God will dwell with his people forever in righteousness. This Davidic king. Who is that? Where is that fulfilled? Well, thankfully, we have it in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us the prophecy in Isaiah 7 is fulfilled by Jesus. 735 years after the promise in Isaiah 7, Israel now, their historical context, they're under the thumb of the Romans. Deliver us from the Romans, from the oppression of the Romans. What are we going to do? Where is God? Has God abandoned us? What about the promise to Abraham? What about the promise to David? Where is God? We're helpless. We're hopeless in the face of this oppression. It's in that context that God is going to fulfill his promise that was made thousands of years before that to his people. So the angel tells Joseph, don't worry. <laughs> the virgin, she's with child by the Holy Spirit. Marry her, and you're supposed to name, this, name him what? Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sin. Jesus means the Lord saves. Now, there's a couple things to see. First of all, right away, we see the nature of our problem brought to light. You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will overthrow all of the oppressive, human oppressors in your life and give you happiness and joy and, and peace and material wealth. No. He will come. He will save his people from their sins. So we're confronted right away with the, with the true problem that we have, which is our sins. This is the thing that we needed to have taken care of for us by God, our sins that have separated us from God, our sins by which we rejected God and have gone after the false gods of this world, the gods of money, the gods of sex and pleasure and contentment and acceptance and power and positions of prestige and ultimately of self. And because of our sin, we are utterly helpless and hopeless to rectify the problem in ourselves. We are enslaved to sin and death and Satan. And we stand on the precipice of destruction, eternal destruction, where we'll have to bear the wrath of a holy God forever because of our sin. The end.
What if that was the end? We have no hope. We're helpless. That's it. What are we going to do? Right? Like we have to feel the weight of it. Do you feel the weight of that? Until we do, we're never going to get the gospel. We're never going to get Christmas, what Christmas is all about. No, it's not the end. The two words that we love to say, but God. But God sends forth his eternal son who is named Jesus. The Lord saves and he will save. How will he save? He will render perfect obedience to God's law and then he'll go to a Roman cross and be nailed there, hoisted between heaven and earth, naked for all to see. And there on the cross, he'll have the full wrath of God poured out upon him for all of our sin all of our blasphemy, all of our faithlessness, all of our wavering, all of our religiosity, all of our hypocrisy, all of our sins of word and thought and deed, every foul word, every word we should have spoken but didn't speak, and every word we did speak that we shouldn't have spoken, every sin laid upon him, and he bears it all, the outer darkness, for sinners who deserve nothing except wrath. For sinners who deserve nothing except condemnation, who deserve to be left in that helpless and hopeless state forever, who have no business in demanding anything from God. And yet God says, here's what I'm doing for you. I am saving my people. And notice it's a perfect atonement, a perfect salvation. He will not might, will save his people. Who are his people? The Apostle Paul, going back to the remnant theme, there's a remnant chosen by grace in Christ from all eternity. How did you ever come to believe? Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, immeasurable grace, amazing grace, astounding grace, stupendous grace. That's how. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because you were so great, but because God is so great. He lavished his love upon you in Christ. And now all of his people, all of his sheep, shall be saved. Not one, not one will be lost. Not one. He will save his people. And so the text says, this took place to fulfill what Isaiah said, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, God with us. The child Emmanuel is no longer merely a sign that God is with his people. This child is the reality to which the sign pointed to. Jesus is Emmanuel because Jesus is God of very God. He is the one who is the seed of the woman. He is the one who crushed the head of the serpent and the only one who has done that. And God now has shed the spirit of the Son abroad in our hearts whereby we cry out what? Abba, Father. 
And in Christ now, we're no longer helpless to, to sin and death and Satan. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We have, as the old Baptist song says, victory in Jesus. That's what we have. And I'll proclaim that to the day I die, Lord willing. I don't care what people think about it. We have victory in Jesus. In union with Christ, we have hope, an anchor for our soul, a certain expectation of the future in Christ. And in baptism and the Lord's Supper, we have perpetual signs, signs of the faithfulness of Yahweh to save his people. And not just save us, but to be with us, to walk with us through every circumstance, as we walk through the wilderness of this world on our way to the eternal promised land, the land, true land, flowing with milk and honey. And when Christ will return and consummate his kingdom, create a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. As I bring this to a close, that's what Christmas is all about. Two little words that I bet you never thought how do you get that helpless and hopeless in Christmas together? Because helpless and hopeless is what we are apart from Christ. And Christmas is about Christ coming into this world to save a helpless and hopeless people. If you never have, I pray today that you turn to Christ. Understand your condition apart from him. You have to understand that you are helpless and hopeless that you stand on the precipice of destruction, eternal destruction, but God sent Christ to live for you, to die for you, and offers you the free gift of eternal life. Take it today. It's a free gift. How do I do that? Lord Jesus, forgive me. I turn from my sin. I place all my trust in you. Save me, Lord. And if you have, rejoice in the Lord. Don't waver in the faith. Don't be distracted by the idols of the world. Let us not put our, our trust or our hope in other things, but let us stand firm in our faith in Christ, the solid rock, the chief cornerstone who dwells within us by his spirit and gives us the victory over sin and death and Satan. In Jesus Christ, God is with you. Today and every day, in every second of every day. So let us rejoice and be glad. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. So grateful, Lord, for your everlasting patience toward us. Help us, Father, to take hold of this word and to live lives that are pleasing to you as we rest in you and trust in you and rely upon you alone. Christ, our Emmanuel. In Jesus' name we pray.